Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2.0, just as I am in the still running Psychedelic Salon 1.0, <laughs> from which I'll be podcasting another Terrence McKenna talk tomorrow. But today is a day that I've been looking forward to for a long time. It is the day when the salon begins to expand beyond what I and the other co-hosts that we've had here have been doing for the past 12 years. Today brings us the first of the Salon 2 podcasts, and it's hosted by Lex Pelger, who I've asked to tell you a little bit about what his psychedelic clan is up to. And after Lex's introduction of the Symposia team, he will be interviewing Islet Waldman about her new book that is titled, A Really Good Day, How Microdosing Made a Mega Difference in My Mood, My Marriage, and My Life. <laughs> Great title. And uh, since I've been a proponent of microdosing myself, after first experimenting with it for several months, many years ago, I'm anxious to uh, hear this interview myself, which I'll be doing for the first time after downloading it, just as you have. So this is going to be my first time to listen to a podcast from the Psychedelic Salon in the same way that you do. And uh, I'm looking forward to this as an ongoing experience. Now, uh, let's begin the first Salon 2 program from Lex Pelger and the Symposia team. And she said, oh my God, Mom, what is wrong with you? Are you like on acid or something? And uh, I was like, I couldn't believe it. But no, I was not, in fact, going to tell her at that moment that I was on acid. But yes, I was, in fact, on acid. Hello, I'm Lex Pelger, host of Symposia, and this is our first contribution to the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. I want to begin by thanking Lorenzo for inviting us to contribute and for all his hard work making this podcast such a cornerstone of the community. Today, our first interview is with the writer Ayelet Waldman about her new microdosing memoir, A Very Good Day. It's about her month-long experiment taking tiny amounts of LSD every few days, and we're glad to have her on the podcast. Before we roll the tapes here in the No Nonsense studio, I want to tell you a little bit more about our work here at Symposia. We organize talks and conferences and storytelling events about drugs. We focus on the issues around psychedelics and harm reduction and drug education and policy reform to end the war on drugs. In Symposia Magazine and at our live events, we strive to bring the science and the stories together. Here's the news on our end and how you might get involved. For starters, we hope to see you at the Psychedelic Science Conference this April in Oakland. Even if you can't swing a ticket to the conference, you should come to the free marketplace. It's open to the public and it's a great spot to bring people along who might be curious about this world. They'll have the MAPS bookstore and the art gallery and the tea house to chill in and lots of vendors with pretty things for sale. And then there's also the Symposia stage. That's where we'll be running a non-stop reel of talks, conversations, storytelling, interviews, and live podcasts. If you can't make it out to Oakland, you can watch a live stream on our Facebook page, April 21st to the 23rd.
because of the opportunity of that stage. That led to Symposia's biggest news, our idea to launch a storytelling tour across the continent we're now calling the Blue Dot Tour. We chose the name because we want to be hitting those blue cities and red states that serve as such pressure cookers of activism, education, and art. Like Asheville or Viroqua or Missoula, Montana. But we won't stop there. We also want to go to those red cities and blue states, and those purple cities and green states, and those orange cities and black states, and anywhere else we can find a host from Mexico to Canada. I love the open mic storytelling events because people share their own experiences with drugs, good, bad, or strange. And we believe that in learning about drugs and other intense states, we can learn a lot from listening to each other. To help change the world, we want to foster a place where the activists and the scientists and the explorers and the harm reductionists and the academics and the doctors and the heads can all gather together and start building a new model. So I will have my PAPS truck, a table of literature from our favorite drug organizations, and a pickup bed filled with books. See the blue dot tour on symposia.com for more. Now on with the show. I yell at Waldman's brave to come out of the closet about her intentional medical use of LSD. But she is already no stranger to controversy. She even made it all the way up to an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show. After she wrote a New Yorker piece where she declared that she loved her husband even more than she loved her children. However, since she's married to the novelist Michael Chabon... I will take her word for it, because anyone who wrote The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay must be a hell of a guy. And so with even more bravery, I think, she came out a decade ago on her blog about being a parent with bipolar disorder. And if you want to see those writings, you can see it on her Bad Mother blog, which she stopped writing long ago because she said blogging was bad for her mental health. Luckily, she did continue writing. And in her new book, she goes further than just covering microdosing. With her background as a federal public defender in California and a consultant to the Drug Policy Alliance, she covers the gross atrocities and the wrongheadedness of the war on drugs. I would recommend this book as a gift to anyone you know who might be considering very low doses of psychedelics. And as Hamilton Morris recently said on the Duncan Trussell podcast that they broadcast from the Bell House here in Brooklyn. I would have never expected that the way to get everybody interested in psychedelics was to make them not psychedelic. <laughs> and so for those who want to dig deeper on microdosing, look to Jim Fadiman. He's been a leader in the field, always gracious with advice, and indeed assisted Ayelet on her book. Now on with the show, here is Ayelet Waldman. When did you realize that this was going to turn into a book that you'd be spreading around? Well, I think uh, probably about eight days in, somewhere between the eighth and tenth day, I realized that um, it was a 30-day experiment, and I had decided not to work on the novel that I was working on at the time, but rather to just let myself um, write, but write whatever I wanted. And about eight to ten days in, I realized that what I was writing was a book about not just the experience, but kind of a larger discussion about the history and neurochemistry of psychedelic drugs, the history of the war on drugs. Um, it's kind of it, it, the its historical bases, the, the way that it's been fought, the results, the kind of legal and social implications of the war on drugs, um, a family history of mental illness, a story of my marriage. So it's kind of a wide-ranging, integrated 
piece that has as its core this 30-day experiment, microdosing with LSD. It's a great way to cover a lot of topics. We now know from recent fMRI studies that um, psychedelic drugs, especially LSD, allow different parts of your brain to communicate in unusual and novel ways. And in a sense, this is a book that is that encompasses a lot of different parts that integrate in novel and I would argue coherent and interesting ways. That's great. But what was it like to start digging into the research on all these different background areas? Well, I have a lot of expertise in uh, in uh, drug policy reform coming from the criminal justice perspective. For seven years, I taught a seminar at UC Berkeley School of Law on the legal and social implications of the war on drugs. And before that, I was a, I taught constitutional criminal procedure and criminal law, and I was a criminal um, defense attorney. I was a federal public defender, and most of my cases were drug cases and also immigration cases at the time. So I had this... Um, area of expertise, but I didn't have any specific expertise in psychedelic drugs. So that's where most of my research, um, the sort of, the stuff that was new to me happened. That makes sense. It's a, it's a great background for what you were talking about. And in fact, you're, you had a novel, Daughter's Keeper, about a drug dealing involved in that. How did that right, come that about? Right, that was sort of the first literary novel. I, I got my start writing murder mysteries, and that was the for, first sort of straight novel that I wrote. That was, and it was about a young woman whose boyfriend um, gets caught up in, uh, basically set up is in a drug conspiracy, and she uh, becomes tangentially involved and thus faces prosecution under the conspiracy laws, facing a um, a very long mandatory minimum sentence. So, <clears throat> so I'd written about the kind of I'd written about the mandatory minimums, about the war on drugs, about, again, from a criminal justice perspective before. In, um, and I had written, you know, I had a column at one point for Salon, and I've written quite a bit of nonfiction uh, about, and many of the topics I covered had to do with criminal justice. And I also edited an anthology of first-person narratives from women in prison, which was all about, it was designed to illuminate different human rights violations within the women's prison system. So um, I've kind of kept my foot in on the, criminal justice area for a long time it's really in a way um the the stuff that I've you know I've written 13 books and um most of them haven't have you know there've been novels about all sorts of subjects like losing a child or um the holocaust and in truth that's those are probably more anomalous when you consider my history and my education than this book which is about the drug war and um and you know mental illness in the brain. And that's one of the things that's really been impressive is how honest you are about mental illness and talking about uh, bipolar disorder. Uh, I, Mike, I guess my first question is, what's the, what's the things not to say when someone comes out about having a mental uh, illness of some kind? What's the stuff what, you hate hearing? I mean, yeah, I from think... people who mean well but say the stupid, say the wrong thing. I haven't really encountered that in my life. I mean, I think most people tend to be, you know, if they're mature, they tend to be compassionate. So I think the what you do if someone tells you that they have a mental illness is you try not to be too afraid of them. You know, the the fact is that um, most mental illnesses are managed fairly well, and they're um, it's like you know it's like having diabetes. You take your medicine, you're fine. You don't take your medicine, things start to go off the rails. Um, so how did how did that play into your concerns as you started uh, considering a LSD microdosing experiment? Well, I was in a particular situation in that my medication regimen, um, I have a mood disorder called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, 
or I had at the time. It's hard to say what I have now because um, I haven't had my period in so long. But uh, um, my so premenstrual dysphoric disorder is just basically it's like being bipolar, but just in the week before your period. So I um I and I had a very uh, effective treatment protocol. I took one week of SSRIs in my case. Alexa, but it, there people use different SSRIs, Prozac markets um, a version just for this. I took one week in the week before my period, and that really treated the disorder very effectively. I was, um, I was, I I functioned very well. But as you get older, if you're a woman, as you hit your sort of 40s and approach your 50s, you enter a period called perimenopause. So menopause is when you don't have your periods anymore. And but perimenopause are the years leading up to that when your cycles start to get a little wonky. So you know you could be a, have a regular my case had a regular 30-day cycle from the time I was 13 until the time I was about 43. So for 30 years I had a very predictable cycle. But then things kind of you know some days I some per- months I'd have two periods. Sometimes I'd have no period for four months. And so my treatment protocol depended on me being able to predict when I was going to get my period and when I could no longer predict it I couldn't take my meds so I was in a and I was in a situation where my meds weren't working nothing was working I was getting very very depressed even desperate and that's when I decided to try microdosing wow that must uh so really put all those different pharmaceuticals and they just didn't come up so LSD was the last thing to try yeah, I mean, I had tried lots and lots. I mean, in the, in the book, I have a whole long section on all the different medications that I've been prescribed. And, and, you know, some of them worked for a little while. Some of them worked a little bit. But mostly they were ineffective. And and what was really curious was that of all the things that I've tried, I think this LSD microdosing was without a doubt the most effective. Now, of course, without research, I can't say with any confidence that what I experienced wasn't a placebo effect. You know, the placebo effect is very, very strong. And that's why we need double-blind studies in order to assess whether what someone is experiencing is placebo or not. So I can't um, guarantee to myself or anything, anyone else that what I experienced wasn't merely a placebo effect, but it certainly is enough evidence to justify further research, which is what my book calls for. That sounds great. And you saw, did it seem like you felt lasting effects beyond the 30 days, some things that really stuck with you? Um, you know, the awareness and the um, the kind of uh, understandings that I reached during that period, the insights for sure. But I think microdosing is not like, um, you know, many people report with a large dose of LSD that they achieve an improvement in mood and um, anxiety that lasts for a while. And the same is not true of microdosing. Microdosing, I don't think, um, or I'm not sure yet whether, I don't believe that it, it, it lasts in that same way, that it can have a long-term effect. So um, personally, I've had to work very hard to maintain equilibrium, certainly since November. But um, uh, I think, I, so I don't think microdosing is something that you can kind of do for a month and then expect to feel better forever. So um you know, it's very possible that if I find my moods lose control again and if I don't find a legal remedy, you know, I think I'll explore things like ketamine and other treatments first, but I will, I, I, you know, it's good to know that microdosing is always an option. That is great. Yeah, it would be so much more sane if you get at the corner pharmacist 
Yes, it would like be. This. And so then you would actually know that you're LSD. You know, I, I tested the LSD that I received. I used a testing kit from Amazon.com. But I would much prefer to have, you know, actual chemists doing the testing so that I and and I would like to know I think dosing is important too I mean you know, nowadays people just sort of take a standard dose but for all drugs dose depends on weight on experience on brain chemistry and it would be really nice to have um, a, a, a reputable body making dosing recommendations I mean the problem with a criminalized system is that things are not safe and they're not uh, there there's no public health incentive so, you know, people cut heroin with fentanyl and people overdose and people market all sorts of things as LSD, which are not, or as MDMA. You know, there was the incident a few years ago where uh, 11 Wesleyan students ended up in the hospital. One of them had to be intubated and defibrillated um, because they took what they thought was Molly, but that turned out not to be MDMA at all, but rather AB Fubinaca, which is a much more dangerous drug. Yeah, it's happening more and more. I think the yeah. last numbers was uh, half of MDMA tested in the United States isn't uh, has no. MDMA I'd be surprised yet. if it's. I'd be surprised if half even. If I think half is an underestimate. I think. I think the majority of what's marketed now is MDMA or Molly is not. In yeah. fact, it's, because as the precursor chemicals get harder to source, people turn to you know other less more easily sourced chemicals and and unfortunately the more easily sourced chemicals are quite often much more dangerous absolutely it's it's why in one way we're lucky that these things are easier and safer to get now over the dark web i think that's one of the safest ways for anyone out there who wants to get this stuff but i think before going down that path you really have to be smart about doing your research and your own personal well, I'm not, I've never been able you. to do anything like that. I'm far too much of a coward. I don't, I'm not comfortable with a, I feel like if I tried to buy something off the dark web, I'd probably end up trying to order it from the DEA homepage. So that's just not, <laughs> that's not an area that I'm comfortable exploring or talking about. No, but one, one thing I think that uh, is important is the, I don't even think I know what the dark web is really. There you go. That's how much of a Luddite I am. <laughs> That's okay. You can be uh, you can be smashing those looms anywhere you want. Um, it's it's nice that it's out there for the people who really are desperate for medicine specifically and, and want to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, it also allows for a lot of teenagers to be getting anything they want in the world and not being too wise about what they're taking. And so yeah, I mean, in a perfect world, we would have drugs would be sourced sensibly, um, dosed reasonably. We would have a lot of. Um, you know, we would have a, 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 an education campaign and a public health campaign, and we would treat, you know, we would treat them the way we treat coffee, the way we treat, you know, well, ideally better than we treat some pharmaceuticals. Since, in you know, at one point when I was feeling suicidal before I started this experiment, I was standing in front of my medicine cabinet, staring at its contents, evaluating of all the things there: the Vicodin, the antidepressants, the anti-anxiety medications the Valium, what was the most dangerous thing in my medicine cabinet? And the answer was Tylenol. That was by far the easiest. If I wanted to kill myself, by far the easiest and fastest way would be to overdose on Tylenol because that was the most toxic thing in my cabinet. Wow. Wow. Yeah. There, you know, it doesn't take that much more Tylenol to shut your liver off for good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's amazing compared to toxicity of LSD, which is something you talk about in your in your book yeah. that turned you on initially, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know much about LSD when I started my research, and it turns out that there's a figure that um, chemists call the LD50 of a drug. That's the amount that you can that will cause you to overdose. And LSD doesn't have a verified LD50 because there's no verified LSD overdose in the literature. There are two cases of human overdoses of LSD that have been reported, but both of those are suspect. One is an individual who likely uh, died of exposure, and the other one is um, a multi-drug use, and there's no reason to think that it was the LSD that killed that person other than, than not any of the other drugs. So because no, we, there's no, no verified, no real verified LSD overdose, we don't even know what an overdose would mean. Um, there was an instance of a bunch of people in San Francisco who were snorting lines of what they thought was cocaine, but that turned out to be pure LSD. So try to imagine how many thousands of times the regular dose that was. And they were quite sick. They went into the hospital. Um, A couple of them were in comas. They had internal bleeding. But within 12 days, they all left the hospital healthy and healed. So um, even even that much of an overdose won't kill you. It's not a good thing, but it won't kill you. So it's just an interesting interesting, – you know, it's such a vilified drug, but the reasons for its vilification have far more to do with politics and um, white middle-class anxiety than they have to do with science. Absolutely. Which maybe just described America in a nutshell, now that I think about it. <laughs> Unfortunately so. Um, and for anyone out there who heard the story about the elephant that overdosed on LSD, it, it, only, it did happen that they gave a ton of LSD to an elephant, but it seems like what actually killed the animal was the ton of barbiturates they gave it afterwards to try to get it oh, down. Oh, I didn't know that. They gave yeah. it barbiturates to... Ah. Yeah, so... It's, uh, I did not realize that. Yeah, that's what they did to the tripping elephant is gave it too many downers. A rookie hmm. mistake. Um, Good to know. Yeah. Um, when, but it's a great piece of publicity for the, for the DEA. Um, and so on this harm reduction side, what, what's your adv- – you have a lot of people, I'm sure, asking you about your, your FAQs about this and your harm reduction and what, what worked for you specifically and how to microdose these things. So what worked for me, and like I'm very clear that I don't prescribe, I'm not a doctor, and I'm not suggesting that anybody engage in illegal activity, but what worked for me was 10 micrograms of LSD in liquid form taken every three days. I think uh, if it were legal, I would be doing it every other day because I don't actually think the third day is necessary. Um, I think that, and I, I think that the. Um, some people might like a reset day. I think personally that every other day would be the smartest, um, the best for my, my system. Um, and, uh, but I have no, you know, I don't, uh, mine sort of arrived in my mailbox from a mysterious benefactor. So I don't have any tips on how to get it or not, but I would suggest that if you are interested, interested in microdosing, um, there's lots of information in my book, lots of um, stuff about history and neurochemistry and um, research that's important to read. And then if you want to participate in a microdosing study, Dr. James Fadiman has on his website um, a protocol and an FAQ that can be really helpful. That's great. What was it like for you to start talking to him as you started researching this? Um, he was, he's a lovely man. He's very emotionally supportive. And, you know, I think now <clears throat> because of my book, he's getting inundated with people looking for advice and support and, Great. um, which is lovely, but it takes up a lot of his time, I think, but he's really a, just a really generous, wonderful person. 
I was very grateful for that, for the guidance, both um, emotional and intellectual that he gave me. That's really great. His work's been so important in this field. Yes. I mean, he started out in the 1960s doing psychedelic research, and um, that work is really interesting, too, and has a lot to do with why a lot of people microdose. I mean, there are people who do it for me, like me, for mood benefits, but there are also people who do it as kind of a performance-enhancing drug, like Ritalin or Adderall, but without all the negative side effects. And um, Jim, in the 60s, he did... um, he researched the relationship between um, psychedelics and creativity, specifically problem solving. And uh, he did this really fascinating study where he invited 28 engineers, architects, people in the nascent computer business to, um, he and his colleagues had them come in with uh, two problems that they had been each been working on for a long time and hadn't been able to solve, whether they were design problems or math problems or physics problems, whatever they were. And um, he brought, they brought these, uh, all of these engineers and scientists brought their intractable problems in and they took LSD and then they worked on their problems. And a number of them had really profound insights, went on to patent discoveries, form businesses, and um, it was just really beginning this research when it was shut down by the government um, when LSD was criminalized. But just imagine, um, you know, we know that there are a lot of, uh, of you know, Steve Jobs and others have attributed um, much of their mo- the most important insights of their careers to LSD. And that's certainly not, they're certainly not unique. And people, that's one of the reasons I think that LSD is so popular in Silicon Valley. LSD and psilocybin, which effectively act in the same way on the brain. And so what was it like for you those first days as you started down this experience? Well, I, I didn't hole? trip, right? So I didn't have that kind of, you know, flashes of creative in- insight. But I certainly worked really well. I worked better in that month than I've worked ever. Um, I worked productively and creatively and with a kind of amazing focus, but yet not that sort of narrow myopic focus that you get when you try Ritalin or Adderall, but rather a sort of open-minded, creative focus. It was pretty damn awesome. Wow. Yeah. Uh, did you find any days where it wasn't the the right fit? Or, yeah, or well, sometimes that made me a little irritable. Like on some, t- you know, I was on a three day program, so day one microdose, day two, day three don't, day four microdose again. Um, and I was a little irritable sometimes on the day that I took the medication, but um, but less than than without it. Like not, you know, just relative to day two and day three, I'd say. Like, it wasn't as bad as it had been before. And by irritable, I mean, like, you know, just more easily aggravated. But I didn't I didn't have any big fights with my husband or anything that month, which was nice. Or I was much nicer to be around. My children noticed it. And my friends noticed it. Everybody seemed to notice it. Wow, that, that distinct. Yeah, it really was. And when I started telling people that's what I had done, they were all like, that's what it was. In fact, didn't your daughter ask one day? Yeah, she- well, that was just crazy. It was so ridiculous. It was just being really funny with her in the morning and doing her hair and giggling, and which is not normally me. I'm not a morning person. And she said, oh, my God, Mom, what is wrong with you? Are you, like, on acid or something? And uh, I was like, I couldn't believe it. But no, I was not, in fact, going to tell her at that moment that I was on acid. But yes, I was, in fact, on acid. These kids, they're just too smart these days. Yeah, insightful. What do you know? 
And it was it's not something she had ever said before or since. Wow. Uh, what what was it like coming out to your kids specifically? Well, my husband and I have always had a harm reduction approach when it comes to our children and drugs. We've always been very where we don't ever lie to them ever. Um, unlike some people we know who, you know, big stoners in high school were like, no, I never smoked weed. But we never lie to our children. We don't tell them everything. We we we, we feel like we're entitled to privacy. So we say if if we don't want to tell them something, we don't tell them. But about but about this issue in particular, we just we do our best not to lie. So and and we also try to give them as much information as possible. So we give, um, you know, when it comes to say marijuana, we talk a lot about the fact that, for example, it's impossible to overdose on marijuana. That you cannot have a fatal overdose on marijuana. You can't consume enough of it to kill you. But then we also talk about the effects of marijuana on the adolescent brain and how there's research that seems to indicate that those are not great. That especially in the period as your frontal lobe is developing, marijuana is not, um, uh, that there might be some damage caused by marijuana use. So we try to provide them with a lot of information and then leave the decisions up to them because unless you plan to like have your teenager sit on your lap for their entire adolescence, they are going to be out in the world making their own decisions. And we want to make sure that they have the capacity and the information to make those decisions wisely. Whew, that's a great way to handle it. It must be challenging, though, sometimes with that much honesty. Um, um, well, you know, it's better than lying. I feel like, you know, at least I, I my kids tell me what, you know, the kinds of things they're up to. I always say, like, you know, if you're a person who lies to your children about drug use, you better hope that if, God forbid, your kid overdoses, they're near my kids because my kids know exactly what to do. My kids aren't going to dump your kid in a bathtub full of ice water or drop him off in a parking lot of a of a hospital where he expires in a pool of his own vomit, has, as has happened to many kids. My kids are going to call 911 and it's Today they have that they need Narcan and there's a heroin overdose happening and then they're going to call their mother who because the rule is call nine one one and then call mom. That's a great rule. <laughs> yep. Like you know, some people when they send their kids out the door they say drive safe. My I always say use a condom and test your Molly. That's my <laughs> message. Because my one rule with my children is that my job is to keep them safe. There will be no dying on my watch if I can keep if I can keep it from happening. And I think the reason that kids end up at risk is because they're not given the information they need to make good choices. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and this, so how is there, how has there been in terms of pushback and controversy when you're talking about this kind of stuff and your kids? Weirdly, not very much. I mean, there was one article in the New York Times that about microdosing that was basically took me to task and said I was going to, you know, it, 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 it analogized cocaine and LSD, which is, just ridiculous and and um you know cocaine is an addictive stimulant and LSD is a psychedelic and non-addictive psychedelic so the idea of these two drugs being remotely analogous is ludicrous at best but other than that the the feedback has been incredibly positive you know um i have i'm really horrified by what peter Thiel did to gawker and i i'm a first amendment absolutist in many ways and i do not believe that there should be that like lawsuits that kind of lawsuit should be allowed to go forward. But on the other hand, my life is immeasurably better without Gawker in the world. And I'm sure they would have had a field day with this book, but because they haven't been around, the press has been really positive and it's been mostly um, kind of great. Knock on wood, you know, anything can happen tomorrow. 
and you know Jeff Sessions could be breaking down my door as we speak, and I could you could have to I could be writing you sad letters from federal prison asking you to send me books and fill my commissary account. But I think the list, the long list of people that he has is going to attack. Is uh, it, there are a lot of people there before me, like you know every immigrant, every African American, all the gay people. Yeah, with your background in criminal justice, this must be a hard time to watch how things might be moving now. Yeah, I think it really is dangerous. We're in a very dangerous time. That's what I like about your form of activism, is very much take it to people and let them make their own uh, decisions. So what have your audiences been like when you get to speak about this stuff in person? Um, they've been amazing. You know, um, I've had just massive audiences, the biggest of my career. Um, really open. The one thing I've noticed that's been kind of tragic is that people uh, will come up to me all the time and they'll just be so full of, they'll be like, tell me about their microdosing and they're thrilled about it and they, it's been a wonderful experience for them and they, they talk about it loud and proud. And then there are people who come up to me and they take me aside and they whisper in their, my ear with terrible shame that they have a mental illness, they are, they are bipolar, they're depressed, they have anxiety. And it just makes, it breaks my heart that we live in a society where it is, it causes more shame to be mentally ill than to use an illegal drug. That's just awful. Yeah. Are there people who, with a mental illness though, who maybe yourself or a gym fan would have worn against microdosing specifically? Um... Look, I think everything that to do with drugs is all about set and setting. So the most important thing is, you know, set setting is obvious where you take them. Set is you, what you bring to the equation. Um, I think that the link between the, the, the phenomenon of LSD psychosis is, to my mind, has been overstated. But there is no doubt that um, there have been people who have taken psychedelic drugs who are who are mentally ill who have come into the experience. And um, psychedelic drugs have caused an exacerbation of their symptoms. So um, I don't think people who are psychotic or schizophrenic should be experimenting with psychedelics personally. I think that's dangerous. I mean, you know, we may one day find out that there's like a treatment that, for, but that that is that uses some form of psychedelics, but not so far, to my knowledge. And I think um, it's important that uh, people who are, say bipolar and using psychiatric medication that works for them that they not stop using their medication that's really really important I am not someone who says you know run away from psychiatric meds they're terrible I believe that psychiatric meds can be very very helpful they were for me for very many for many years so um, I don't think Mike if your psychiatric meds are working for you then microdosing is not for you that's great advice and and I appreciate what you're saying about uh, schizophrenia too. I think it's a main psychedelic uh, to uh, interaction to be nervous about. And it might and you hear anecdotal reports of small amounts being helpful for people uh, who are schizophrenic. Yeah, but I mean it's we may find they might do a study and find that microdose certain doses of LSD are in fact effective for treating the symptoms of schizophrenia, but we don't know that yet. And, and, um, and large doses of LSD do mimic the symptoms of psychosis, and um, it's just not something you should be messing around with if you have one of those serious psychiatric diagnoses, I, I think. 
I, I believe you're right too. CBD from the cannabis plant might be a better thing to try. Yeah, there's better yeah, indications exactly. there. Um, and s- switching up drugs a little bit, uh, one thing that you mentioned that was really intriguing in the New Yorker article, I think, was about MDMA for rough spots in a marriage. Um, yeah, that's been, that has been really wonderfully effective for me and my husband. We um, tried it at the suggestion of um, uh, Sasha Shulgin, um, the, the man who, though he wasn't the first person to, to synthesize MDMA, that honor goes to Merck, the pharmaceutical company. He was one of the first people to ingest it and, um, and study the effects. And um, Sasha found that um, his wife was it, had experience with doing couples therapy and, and she, she used it in her practice. Other clinicians used it in their practices. And Sasha and Anne both recommended it to my husband and me as a kind of marital therapy tool. And we have found it to be incredibly effective. We do it every couple of years when we feel like we're, we've reached kind of a communications impasse in our relationship. And... Um, it's been great. It's been really, it's been very useful. Like I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand MDMA as a party drug. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, because we just sit and talk for six hours. But, um, but I think it can be, I think it can be really. Um, I, I understand how how come there have been such positive results using MDMA for people with um, PTSD, for example, because it does it it it. It allows you to explore a potentially traumatic or troubling incident, but from a place of empathy and love and compassion, which, you know, PTSD, for example, is really, in, a, in it can be described as a disease of memory. You know, you have these traumatic memories that um, are impossible to confront because confronting them triggers the traumatic response. So if you can, you can um, take a drug that will allow you to deal with those memories in a way that's um, not traumatizing, then you can resolve the symptoms of PTSD. And, um, and in a way, to a much lesser extent, that's kind of like what marital therapy is. You know, you take, you, you want to explore the sources of conflict and stress, but, in, but without anger and without shame and without fear and without, um, uh, you know, sadness. And that's, MDMA allows you to do that. That's beautiful. The quote I really liked from you I saw was, was, I believe that with whom you do MDMA for the first time might be even more important than whom you have sex with for the first time. Yeah, that's what I always tell my kids. (laughs) That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, They don't listen to me, but it would be great. You know, because the whole idea is, like, sex only gets better the more times you do it. The same is not true of MDMA. It's good, sad, but true. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, All right. Uh, the the one question I'd like to end up with, especially curious on your answer because of your background in seeing how the war on drugs operates on the ground, if you were in charge of how these different drugs are available to the public, what kind of system would you like to see in place? I'm in favor of complete uh, legalization. I believe that um, prohibition is causes damage, and I think we should decriminalize all drugs. We should have come from a public health perspective. We should engage in a massive campaign of education. And um, I think, in fact, we should supply drugs to those who are addicted so that they can take safe medications or drugs, even the drugs that are, 
you know, I think even heroin addicts, the, the programs that have been that have proved to be most effective in both protecting people from overdose and in ultimately encouraging them to stop using have been um, uh, drug distribution programs. So I think that it uh, that that that's what we should be doing. We should we should be combating the heroin scourge by giving heroin to people who are addicts because the scourge is caused by the criminalization more than anything else. So I am, um, I am an absolutist when it comes to drug policy. I believe absolutely in um, legalization. Well, thank you so much for your work well, getting these ideas out there. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, you know, be sure to, to um, send me the link so I can put it up on social media where we all connect when, so that we can we never have to leave the house again. Amen. That's the way to do it. Uh, <laughs> all right. The book is A Really Good Day. It's a great combination of many things, especially targeted around microdosing, and it's a worthwhile read, and there's also some great interviews over the Internet. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. To say thank you, we have perks like hemp T-shirts, blotter art, tickets to our events, Palo Santo, and... One of the new chapters from Anandamide, or The Cannabinoid, my graphic novel series about cannabis based on Moby Dick. All new donations will go to buying me a new microphone for this podcast. Find us at patreon.com slash symposium. A special thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, Joey Whip and California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.